0: Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed. I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. I am so lucky to be joined this week by the host of Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, and that would be... Justin Glanville. Thanks so much for joining the show this week, Justin.
1: Hey Bill. Thanks for having me.
0: So this is a little bit off your beaten path, but this is an extremely interesting case. And being from Ohio, I actually uh, was unaware of a lot of this information in this case itself. Far as Ohio state goes, I really was shocked at some of the stuff that I read and some of the stuff I've already heard on your show. You know, how did you get involved and how is that you started into this one episode or this series of episodes?
1: Yeah. And it's you and I were talking right before we started recording about James Renner, the true crime addict extraordinaire. And when I, we'll get to him probably later, but when I reached out to him about this case, Bill, initially he was like, I'm shocked I've never heard of this case. So I think even for people who, really move in these circles of true crime, and especially in Ohio, like it's just been surprisingly under the radar for a really long time. For me, it was never under the radar because my parents would sometimes talk about this case when I was growing up. And the reason was because my mom was a student at Ohio State when it happened, and she was friends with Bill Sprott, who was the male victim. Their involvement was even a little bit deeper because – On the night that it happened, Bill's roommate, Tom McGuigan, who was one of the leading suspects in the case for a while, was spending the night at my mom's apartment because one of my mom's roommates, he was dating at the time and ended up marrying Tom, the roommate. And when Tom went back to his own apartment the next day and discovered the bodies of Mary and Bill in the crime scene, he called back to my mom's apartment and asked for my dad, who was also there that weekend, to come over because he had found some dead bodies. My dad went over to the apartment and it had already been cordoned off as a crime scene at that time. My dad was actually taken into a police cruiser as, a, as an initial suspect taken down to the station because he showed up, I guess, so quickly um, to the scene and was questioned a few more times after that. So my parents were kind of personally involved. They knew Bill. And then, as you mentioned, the crime itself was just so gruesome, and I think it really haunted my parents' memories because of that gruesomeness and just how incomprehensibly violent it was. Like, why did these two really apparently innocent people who were both French majors, like intellectuals, lived very rarefied existences, no apparent involvement in drugs or anything sorted. Why did they need to be killed so brutally? At the time, it was compared to the Manson murders, and there just was a lot of, like, fear on campus that I think stayed with my parents through the decades.
0: Yeah, I can only imagine what your parents felt. I am mean, assuming it's a lot like what the Idaho campus was feeling uh, for a while there before they caught that suspect. But as far as you mentioned James and not knowing this case, again, the brutality of it, I mean, from what I read, I mean, it is as awful as you can imagine. I can't fathom what Tom found when he got home. Again, to be it's not that bit shocking that the first person who finds the body becomes an initial suspect, but that's got to be traumatic, especially when you're not involved and your dad gets also put into a cruiser. I mean, that will definitely stick with you for the rest of your life. And I can understand where you would find the interest in this case, because like you said, it's gone under the radar for 50 Three years, yeah. and that's insane because it's Ohio State, the Ohio State University. Either they've done a really good job of keeping things on the DL, or they're just keeping things close to the vest, or they just have no suspects. How far off campus did they live?
1: I'm not 100% familiar with the Ohio State campus. But not far, just off High Street. If folks, if anyone knows Ohio State, yeah, that's like the main drag, right? That's like where people go out to drink and so on.
0: You can say hi. Yeah, they were on North High, South High, whatever, and that's yeah. And I guess people at the time who... it
1: was regarded as a pretty dangerous neighborhood. From multiple people I've talked to, remember it being kind of a place where a lot of students lived, but also just a lot of kind of transient people at that time it had been kind of a nice neighborhood and then it went downhill, like a lot of student neighborhoods, you know? So.
0: I think it's a lot of the, it was, it was a rougher time. I mean, I'm not that old, but I do remember and recall even when I was being recruited for cross country at Ohio state, that campus was still a little shady and like, yeah, definitely dangerous. I mean, there was a good chance. my friends went to university of cincinnati they got mugged i think each of them got mugged once it's just part of, it's just part of where these schools live and you get these renters college but guys that buy the house and they rent it to whomever
1: yeah
0: and then, then the neighborhood falls apart so as good as it is that the university has expanded it sometimes can have another impact on the local neighborhood so yeah, I would agree with you on that one—that the neighborhood would be dangerous. And again, you said it was just about it was off High Street. Was there anybody like who had seen anything?
1: From what I could piece together from the reports of the time, and and from talking to the police a little bit, and I'm sure we'll talk about what the police have told me and not told me up to this point. <laughs> but so in terms of eyewitnesses. Mary was dropped off at the apartment, in front of the apartment, at about 6 p.m., 6 or 6.30 p.m., by a taxi. The taxi driver saw her walk into the apartment, and nothing out of the ordinary seemed to happen. That taxi driver, by the way, was apparently cleared because of receipts that were found from rides he had given after dropping Mary off as a suspect. Then, according to reports about 7.30, Mary called from Bill's apartment to a female friend who she was planning to spend the night with. Um, Mary was Catholic, Bill was Catholic, and, you know, one thing you'll you'll hear as you continue to listen to the episodes is this idea of were they planning to spend the night together, were they possibly planning to have premarital sex, was a big point in the case, and a, and a a theory for why, what made have motivated the killer. That's what you're going to hear in the next episode, episode four. So Mary calls a female friend planning to spend the night at 7.30. Around eight o'clock, a newspaper boy who was collecting fees from people who lived in that building, there was only a four unit apartment building, was on the front porch and a man told him in a rough voice, get the hell out of here. Then around 10 o'clock, some other people in the building who lived in the building came home from wherever they were and saw Bill's door ajar and some music playing inside the apartment, but they did not investigate. No one who lived in the apartment building heard anything suspect happening. Again, it was only a four unit apartment building. It was a Friday night just off a college campus. So you could conjecture that a lot that everybody was out, but still, these were complex homicides with a lot of different modalities of violence inflicted on Mary and Bill, and it would have taken potentially hours to carry out. So the fact that the killer felt comfortable that he or they weren't going to get caught carrying out this crime is, is kind of, that's one of the things I've never been able to wrap my mind around. You know, how can you, how can you be certain no one's going to come back and discover what you're doing.
0: You wonder what that whole mindset is when you look at what the victims went through, because it's basically torture. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to get into the specifics because it really is awful. Yeah. And I mean, I've done a lot of investigation coverage and seen a lot of terrible things, but like this ranks up there as one of the most brutal acts of. Murder I've seen when it comes to a bowling ball, pliers, wires that are from actually hangers. Right. What, why would they do this to these two individuals in such a manner? It doesn't make much sense other than just somebody. It seems so personal, I guess, yeah. is what I'm trying to get at.
1: That's exactly right, Bill. And And the deeper I go into this case, the more personal it does seem. At the end of episode three which is out already out now you probably heard it you know we had a medical examiner re-review all the coroner's reports and one thing that became clear from that was that the stab wounds in especially in mary's case happened after death so that this the multiple stabbings that that happened weren't even part of killing them so that's when this idea of this being just like extremely personal, almost ritualistic in a way. And again, you'll hear more about those types of theories as we, as we go through the episodes.
0: I was going to ask you about that because I did see that the, the stab wounds and you don't have to go into too much detail, but that the stab wounds were in a, like in a certain pattern. And when you ever see that, that's just, again, I can see where the Manson family connection comes in where it's, Literally a year after, you know, the Tate murders and the LaBianca Bianca murders, and yeah. you have basically people that are on edge. I can see where cops are coming from, yeah, in investigating that. But again, why these two, and why such brutality? And you mentioned something earlier about the premarital sex thing. I mean, this 1970, like the age of feminism has already begun. Yeah. Just seems like a very, bi- very big stretch for some sort of killing. Doesn't seem like it would fit. Punish the punishment does not fit the crime is my is my theory on that.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, especially in 2023, right? It's like you look back and you're like, really? I, I, and I can talk about this because this episode will be out by the time your episode airs. One of the investigative angles over the years has been. That a religious figure in Mary's life wanted to kill her and whether Bill was just like happened to also be there or he was also like specifically targeted because she planned to have premarital sex. That is mind boggling in this day and age that that would even be a thing. It was a different period. Mary came from a very religious Catholic background and was very lo- religious and Catholic herself. Her sis- twin sister, Martha, who is really my partner through the whole podcast, she's really the one who, as the podcast goes on, she's really the one taking the reins and pushing the Columbus police to like pay attention to this and try to get this finally solved. She's adamant that Mary never would have... Considered having premarital sex in the first place, but I know I agree. It it doesn't seem like even if that was a motivation. Again, the the level of brutality seems seems a mismatch.
0: It it does seem like a mismatch. And I guess my question to follow up that religious aspect of it is: one, was she what did she go to a local church? on the regular, Mm -hmm. and two, how far away was she from her family? You know, because I know she was from Ohio, and then he was from Pennsylvania, right? Right.
1: Yeah, so she grew up in Portsmouth, Ohio, which is down on the Ohio River. Okay. Was going to college at College of Mount St. Joseph in Cincinnati at the time this happened. So she was an undergraduate, and Bill was in his first year of graduate school at Ohio State. So she was, what, maybe a couple hours away from family,
0: About two hours, probably, I guess, give or take traffic. Back then, you could only drive 55, so...
1: Right, right. She, um... So, yeah, she was a couple hours away. She was very devout, from all accounts. Her twin sister, Martha, again, remembers Mary being very firm in her belief that she should not have sex before marriage. She was a practicing Catholic. She carried a rosary with her. A rosary was found um, on... Mary had a rosary when she died You know and, and Bill was also Raised in a Catholic household it Doesn't seem like he was maybe quite as Devout but but Was as well
0: Was there somebody in her life That would have been so offended by this yeah. Act of Whatever But again how would he know
1: <laughs> And that's another puzzling thing because This trip and I think This, this we delve into in episode Five which isn't out yet but This trip was very last minute. Mary got a ride at the, kind of at the last minute, like from all accounts, like around noon or 1 p.m. on Friday, February 27, 1970, she found out some other girls from Cincinnati were driving north, actually all the way to Cleveland, and were willing to drop her off in Columbus. She herself didn't even know she was going to Columbus until early afternoon on the day of the murders. So for someone else to have found out that information in the meantime is that that's just a very short window in terms of was there a religious figure in her life that would have been angry enough? Not that I have found out about and not that Martha, her twin sister, could think of either. I asked Martha that question. She said there was a priest that we grew up with in our hometown who ended up moving to Columbus and was in touch with Mary when she would visit Columbus, but she's like, would he have done such a thing? I can't in a million years imagine it, (laughs) but you know, so no, no one, no one that I have interviewed can think of anyone who would have wanted to do this to either of them.
0: It makes my mind, the true crime mind that it's been warped over the years. It just automatically makes me think of stalking. And if That's the only way somebody would really be able to know if they were like watching her. Yeah. And that could be somebody who would be like, let's say she had a suitor that she had no idea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We all know about incels now and all that in that whole world. And back then there wasn't really a definition for certain things. It could have been very possible that she had somebody follow her up to Columbus and commit this crime It would have to be somebody that was really into her. Yeah.
1: Well, here's another wrinkle though, Bill. It was an all female college that she went to college of Mount St. Joseph was all, was all girls. So I I mean, unless it was a woman who was stalking her and committed the murder, you know, but uh, you know, someone would have had to have told a guy, you know, a stalker, you know, who was on campus. So,
0: okay. You burst my bubble on that one. (laughs) Thanks. But, I would say that sometimes those, you know, all girls' schools are located near an all boys' school. True, true. So I'm not trying to stretch it. I'm just saying that's true. That's
1: true. And I understand, like, the brother school of the College of Mount St. Jo- Joseph was Xavier University, which is also in Cincinnati. And that's where Bill went as an undergrad. So. And I guess there was a lot of like mixing that happened between the two campuses. So you're not, you're not totally up base. Like there could have been someone potentially from Xavier who knew her and might've wanted to stalk her. It's an interesting theory. I hadn't thought about that.
0: Again, that's just my true crime mind. And again, apologies to, to everybody. (laughs) I just, I just, I think of the, the scenarios and how, Could somebody, one, know that she was going to Columbus on a whim? Yeah. And two, why in the hell is it so brutal? Yeah. It's just overkill upon overkill. Right. Who died first?
1: Mm. It seems like Mary died first from everything we can tell from the coroner's reports and autopsy reports. At the same time, as we... And when I say we, I mean, really me and Martha, but then also Bill's sister, Pat, gets more and more involved in, in the investigation and trying to reopen the case, too, as the series goes on. We started hearing more and more that the theory is that the murder was already, that something was happening to Bill, and Mary walked in on that. Bill seems to have died second, but... He potentially was under attack first, if that makes sense.
0: It makes total sense, except it kind of makes him the primary target then.
1: Right, or they. Res- they, Or Mary was the primary target, but they felt like they had to take care of Bill. Yeah, first, I guess that. I guess.
0: Yeah, I was wondering yeah. if you were going to. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I could see that. It, se- it still seems. Awfully personal. Yeah. Were there any stab patterns on Bill, too?
1: They were the same on both. Um, They were both clustered. On both Mary and Bill, the stab wounds were clustered under the right and left shoulder blades. Um, There were... And and I'll, I'll just mention this because it is brought up in episode four, which is coming out tomorrow. We'll be out by the time your listeners hear this. There were eight on each side of Bill's back. Very specifically clustered in those areas. And there were eight and 15 on Mary's back. Mary's sister Martha really wonders about that and brings up some interesting theories about that related to Catholicism. Like what was the significance of eight and why underneath the shoulder blades? I mean, you think of wings, you think of... Yeah, so, and the fact that those occurred after death, again... They don't seem to be – the stab wounds don't seem to be part of the killing itself, the way the killer was trying to kill them, if that makes sense.
0: But it seems like a, like a calling card. A
1: calling card or, again, something ritualistic, some
0: – It's very Da Vinci code. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that's a far-fetched thing, but it's if it revolves around religion – it opens up so many interesting doors.
1: It does. I'll tell you, like, when I first started looking into this case, Bill, I really thought this this was just some psychotic person who was wandering around the neighborhood, saw Mary, a single woman, get out of a cab and walk into a building and potentially just like followed her up. That was kind of that was just kind of my feeling about it. When I started looking into it, but as I've looked into it more and more and I've heard more and more about the details of what happened and and also just heard more about the police theories about what happened, I'm less inclined to believe that and more inclined to believe that it was someone who who really did know them. I should also mention that at the time of the murders and you may have seen this when you were reviewing the articles and the coverage from 1970. Mm-hmm. The leading theory that at least the police talked about with the papers was that this was potentially the work of a serial rapist who was active just off campus in in 1970 he was known as the North Side rapist and he would gain entry to women's apartments by saying he needed to use the phone so that potentially explains how why there were no signs of struggle or forced entry which is another part of this there were no signs of, of forced entry or struggle in the apartment. That's another thing that could speak to someone who knew them. But it also jibes with the theory of a, of a north side rapist who lied, made something up in order to get into the apartment. Bill and Mary were both very trusting people. From everything I've heard, who had every reason to trust people, had been brought up in loving families, felt safe in their lives. But... Over the years, over the decades, it seems like the police, too, have veered away from that theory of of a Northside rapist and toward a theory of someone who knew them.
0: You know, it's interesting to think that someone would follow somebody into the house and commit that crime. That just seems really—we're running out of options here, but it seems one of those unlikely scenarios—
1: no, you're, you're right. I mean, especially because, as we keep saying, the level of violence. Why would someone who's opportunistic... Why? Someone who's opportunistic wouldn't have a vendetta against... A personal vendetta, right? Against these two. Why commit that level of overkill? I will say, I did... I know you've had him on your show a number of times. Nick from True Crime Garage, I did talk to him about this case. I'm not sure I'll be able to include... Our interview in in the show, but one thing that he said was that struck him as odd from the angle of someone new, someone who knew Marion Bill, was that there was little attempt to cover up the bodies or even secure the apartment. He said, typically when it's a known perpetrator, There's some attempt to cover the bodies afterwards or hide the crime scene, and that didn't happen here. As you heard, the door was left ajar, and their bodies were just left where they were killed. You know, there was no attempt to kind of cover them up. So that's one thing, like, I guess, forensically, that doesn't line up with with a known perpetrator. But everything else does seem to point towards someone who had a lot of emotion behind these murders
0: tons of emotion and i was gonna get to this and i that's what i was kind of leaning towards was was she assaulted sexually
1: so accounts of that are frustratingly ambiguous at the time what you'll read in the newspaper articles from 1970 is that she was not raped but she may have been sexually assaulted so that that right there speaks to like our evolution in terms of how we think about sexual assault. That there was even a distinction made between rape and sexual assault at that time, I think, shows that there was a very narrow definition of what rape was versus what sexual assault was. But to answer your like, if I can to try to give you a very simple answer, I would say it's yes, sex. Like she was sexually assaulted in some way, and everything points to there being a sexual motivation to these crimes. Again, even forensically, the fact that they were both strangled. The forensic pathologist told me, who I had to review the case files, when you're up close enough to someone to strangle them, there, that implies a level of intimacy and contact where there's a sexual motivation behind that. And that's, that's what happened with both Mary and Bill. The forensic pathologist said that she would have ordered a rape kit for both of them because of the way that... Um, they were killed and the strangulation involved um, from everything we've heard too, the DNA evidence in the case, which this is an important part of the case is that there's very good DNA evidence in this case. And that's why there's really, I think reason to be optimistic that it can and will be solved was from semen left on a bedspread where mary was found you know yes everything points to there being a sexual motivation and some type of sexual assault involved in at least mary's killing and possibly both of their killings
0: it it sort of throws out the spiritual aspect or the uh the religious aspect if if you want to go back to what we've been discussing if he was you know a religious zealot (laughs) he's probably not doing what he what they found But then again, who's to really say what goes on behind somebody's doors? So that does sound more like the Northside rapist. So did Nick agree with you or did Nick say that it was probably unlikely that it was the Northside rapist because of the fact that he left the bodies the way that he did?
1: I think Nick was saying, and I'd have to go back and review, I think he was he was more leaning toward this was someone unknown to them, not necessarily the Northside Rapist, but someone unknown to them because of the way the bodies were left. One important thing to say about the Northside Rapist is that in no case did he kill his victims. So for, and the way that the police developed a police sketch after the deaths of Mary and Bill was to go back and Reinterview the the Northside Rapist previous victims and come up with a police sketch. So he did not typically kill his victims. So what happened here, if this was the Northside Rapist, what happened here to so radically change his MO? It doesn't seem like anything went horribly awry in terms of Mary or Bill posing a threat to him. Right, like physically.
0: Were there any defensive wounds at all on either of them?
1: Only uh, excoriation marks on their necks, where okay. they were
0: trying to trying pull to pull themselves, pry themselves off from of the, getting strangled.
1: Yeah, but that's that's the only ones that were that were reported. So it seems like he was able to, to restrain them before. I don't know if you mentioned the bowling ball. The bowling ball.
0: Go in there right now, and I was going to say, because it seems like the bowling ball, that would kill them. It's kind of like what Ted Bundy did with, I always forget the, the word, but, you know, his little thing that he would smash people, go, women over the head with and knock them out. And sometimes it would kill them because it fractured their skull. Yeah,
1: right. So it seems like they were both struck with some objects. There's some question about whether it was a bowl, whether it was the bowling ball or it was something else. I should say the bowling ball was actually everything that they believe was used in the attacks was found from within the apartment. That's another thing that points to, I guess, a couple of things. Number one, potentially an unplanned murder. But number two, maybe some somebody who knew them knew, I don't know. So the bowling ball was, was in the apartment. My mom specifically remembers that bowling ball being in the apartment. It was used for such a innocent purpose. It's kind of heartbreaking. It was used as an umbrella holder. It was a tester bowling ball that the two guys, Tom and Bill, used as an umbrella holder for their umbrellas. And my mom remembers talking about it and kind of joking about it. And it was that bowling ball, they think, that was used to strike both Mary and Bill over the head. And as you said, that wound itself could have potentially been enough to kill them was the killer somehow able to approach them from behind and strike them with that? And that's why there was no sign, no apparent signs of struggle.
0: Did Bill have any bowling ball lacerations or anything like that? They
1: both had similar lacerations okay. to the head, so it appears they were both struck with something, whether it was both the bowling ball or...
0: Yeah, it seems like it, if that was the case, that would definitely knock both of them out. I mean, at the very least, knock them out. Yeah. Then to strangle him and then to go even further, everything that he used in this torturous process was found within the apartment. Correct. So it's not like he was prepared or had some sort of killing kit that you see in TV shows nowadays. Right. That does kind of go towards an unplanned killing. Yeah. And you may be onto something that what you originally thought going into the case Maybe where you end up at the end of the case,
1: potentially,
0: because it does sound crazy yeah. to do this.
1: Yeah, and this is part of why it is beyond like my family's connection to the case. It is such a compelling case. It it's just the thing that different elements don't seem to add up. I mean, if it was a crime of opportunity, why why the ritualistic elements of it? You know, why elements that, by the way, don't seem to really show up in any other killing so it's not like there was some crazy guy out there who left as his calling card a very specific number of stab wounds on people's backs you know like that that doesn't that doesn't show up anywhere else you know
0: right it's totally its own thing
1: yeah right it's very specific to this killing yeah
0: So when you were investigating this, did you find that anything was taken from the apartment? Was there any sort of robbery or motive for that?
1: The only thing that I saw reported missing was a little bit of money from their wallets. But the wallets themselves, or the purse in Mary's case, were left behind. And then a gold-fringed rug, from what I can tell... I think it was Tom McGuigan identified that he was the roommate identified that a gold fringe rug was the only thing missing from the apartment. That rug was later found in a bakery delivery truck, not far from the apartment. Um, And I believe the theory for it was, it was used to clean the, the knife potentially and then, you know, taken out of the apartment, but it doesn't seem to have yielded any, significant clues nothing else was taken from the apartment so as i say in the podcast you you could ar- you could maybe argue that robbery was a motive cuz some cash was taken but these were college students you don't <laughs> i don't i don't think you go into a college apartment expecting to no. get a lot of cash right i mean
0: literally how much walking around money did you have in your pocket when you were in college other than maybe to 20 bucks that's all I tops, ever had tops. yeah I yep. mean like sure you'd go to the ATM if I had to but I never carried cash yeah it's not like you could break into my apartment and just have a whole bunch of bundles of cash for you to right. steal and give you reason to steal from me right it goes back to what you originally said is these were two totally innocent totally devout individuals trusted everybody and for them to end up in this scenario where they're part of a podcast 53 years after the fact and they have DNA yeah it's super got to be super frustrating for her sister and Bill's sister
1: yeah
0: it's just very irritating to think that they don't have any more information to go on have the Columbus police been helpful In this uh, podcast, it's a tough one because I know that they like to drag their feet on stuff.
1: I will say they have. They have been very intentional about. Not working directly with me, am I surprised by that? No, because that's the classic relationship between cops and reporters, especially as they have said multiple times for an open case. However, they have been communicating, especially with Martha, Mary's identical twin sister. And Martha is someone that I have been working very closely with. You'll hear, do I get to eventually meet with the police? Spoiler alert, yes. And it's because of Martha. Have we, she and I, and then Pat's... Sorry, Bill's sister, Pat, have we been entirely always satisfied with the information that we're collectively being given about the status of the investigation? No. (laughs) And that that has varied a lot, as you say, with the DNA case and, and, uh, you know, caveat, I'm not a crime reporter, so I'm kind of learning about all the ins and outs of DNA testing myself but i had similar thoughts of you as you of okay we have now forensic genetic genealogy as a tool that's solving cold cases right and left there's really really good dna evidence in this case from everything that we've heard why is it taking so long to submit that to where it needs to go i, I You'll find you'll hear more about that and kind of how it evolves as the podcast goes on.
0: As a um, listener, we understand that, you know, you can't give away the, yeah. the secret sauce. But, yeah, I've, you know, had personal experience with dealing with police. And, yeah. yeah, you know, they do want to keep certain things close to the vest. But as far as this case goes, it's 53 years old. You'd think they would welcome somebody to take another look at it. Yeah even if it is a podcast we've seen these things get solved it's right. not going to be like the first time this has ever happened yeah. but like when it comes to dna i guess i wasn't saying that just because they have dna they should automatically be able to solve the case mm-hmm. because everybody should know that dna is not it's not a silver bullet yeah. there's a lot of steps you have to go through processes that take years months you don't have necessarily all the DNA that you want to be able to work with. I know that in the case that's is close to my heart, you know, the Mahalovic case, it's close to Renner and Nick's again, they don't have that much DNA. So if they find a test that they can use as little DNA as possible, they're going to do that, do that first. but you, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's going to, it's like the way that chief special explained it to me was, Hey, if you have five of one thing and it takes four to make the test go, then you're left with nothing, yeah. nothing to move forward with. So you either blow it all now or you wait until the technology gets better and better. And as you said, there are cases being solved every day, seems like. Yeah. And again, we haven't really seen a lot of these cases fully go to trial. We're still in that sort of in between zone where it's, yes, it's all out there, but it kind of needs to be codified. Like they need to figure out who's working with what, and mm-hmm. I'm very happy they're doing it. I think it's fabulous.
1: you raise really good points, and you know one of the things that I tried to explore in this podcast beyond just you know the details of the crime and who did it is is this question of what does it take to reopen a cold case? You know, what does it, and and solve a cold case. And there are a lot of ins and outs to that, as you point out. There are a lot of rules about testing DNA that I wasn't aware of before. I think you raise a really good point about, especially for cases this cold and this old, can there be a less hardline approach in terms of partnering? You know, uh, that's another point that your, our mutual friend Nick from True Crime Garage raised, too, is, you know, for, for cases this old, why not get a little bit of help? You know, you're, you're talking about somebody who, with this killer, has evaded arrest for 53 years, you know, and, and the police have, for whatever reasons, I'm sure very legitimate ones, haven't been able to find him. So why not, you know, why not seek out a little more help? Um, and it, I'll tell you another frustrating thing is like over the years and so much is dependent, I think, on who's running the cold case department and the personalities that happen to be involved at that particular time. 15 years ago, if I had been working on this podcast, I think I would have gotten a lot more access because it seems like the police who were investigating the case at that time, they were inviting reporters into the evidence room. So a part of me is like, oh, my gosh, I wish I had been working on this back then because I think we all could have gotten a lot more access. So I think it's it's also just who you happen to have that you're dealing with.
0: You see it in what just happened in Gilgo. I mean, it yeah. changed police chiefs and people in, in charge basically you know, reexamined the case and found, well... They found the guy, not the next day, but again, investigations take time. So people should understand that we all want instant solutions. But the one thing about this case is if they say they won't share information with you, and yet it's a cold case, I mean, technically that means it's closed. I guess it's not technically closed, but it's still... By denying you that information, they're kind of implying that the case is still open. I understand that cases remain open forever until they find a solution, but Nick's idea about reaching out and making other people involved, it's not like we're saying let's crowdsource the whole damn thing because that leads to nowhere and not where you want to go, and it brings in all the crazies. But if you have a group of people, like, I mean— you look at the Innocence Project. Yeah. You look at Porchlight, Nick and James organization. You know, they're doing great things. So it's, I yeah. would just hope that they would be more forthcoming on something. And you're right, like 15 years ago, you probably could have had more access because people were still involved that had investigated or were at the end of their careers yeah. and wanted to talk about it. Yeah. And I don't know if I would have the same access that I have or had five years ago or six years ago you know with the Mahalovic case because of just the way things have changed chief changed so that's a whole nother thing and so you're right it is about the people that run these police departments and these investigations and i guess it's putting resources towards older cases that people have forgotten about but hey there's still family members out there
1: and you know such good points and you know, one thing I've reflected on too is, I think a huge part of why the case has progressed, I wanna give most of the credit for that to the sisters, that they have been pushing the police. I think, and when you look at research about cold cases, that is a, that's a big thing. That's, that's, that's one of the reasons cold cases get solved, is if there are family members who are engaged and who are pushing for a solution, and that's fine and good, but you mentioned there's a lot of cold cases out there. And there's a lot of cold cases where the family members don't have the resources to do that. You know, we're talking about in the case of Mary and Bill, fairly affluent families who now you know both the sisters are retired, they have the time to devote more to this. But there's a lot of cold cases out there where the family members just can't be the ones to, like, push things forward. So what can we do to, like, inspire more breaks in these cases that don't rely on the survivors being the advocates, right, for a solution?
0: A 100%. I think all organizations, and I've preached this before, and I apologize to the listeners because it's been discussed a few times about the required retirement age of 57 for the FBI – and when i interviewed phil torsney he said i was jacked up at 57 i went to afghanistan i wasn't ready to retire and it's like okay well if you gave these retired officers you forced retirement the opportunity to come back and work these cold cases i mean we're talking we would see some really really big cases get solved that's my opinion but the more resources that you have, because again, these guys, 57 isn't 57 that it was 30 years ago. 57 is basically a young man, like, I mean, an older man, but a young middle-aged man now. Right. Before it was like, oh, he's 57. <laughs> time time <laughs> to put him out to pasture. And it's like, wait a second. These guys know everything that they've learned in the last 30 years. And now we want to not take their knowledge and use it? and apply it to potentially solving these 200 plus thousand unsolved cases. I mean, is that the most ridiculous thing? I don't think it is. I think it's a fair ask. I mean, especially with the families.
1: Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing that the sisters both told me is they hope that by working on this podcast with me, it can inspire, look, this isn't the ideal situation that that family members and survivors should have to be the ones prodding the police
0: wholeheartedly agree, but
1: they hope that it can inspire those who are willing to be that advocate or like have the time to be that advocate, because there are a lot of cases that can, can be solved. What well, that's one thing I think we all hope from this podcast is that it inspires others who have cold cases in their families among their friends. So like, be those advocates to get the case reactivated maybe that's the word because as you said they're never closed but reactivated like let's start really paying attention to this moving this up the priority list
0: put some energy into it yeah and you see a lot of cases and i've made friends with the voices of justice host which is uh sarah turney and she's the one she's the advocate for her sister Alyssa turney and that case is tragic because it got all the way to the courts and then the judge decided that they didn't have sufficient evidence and they acquitted him before the trial even began. So that just happened over the summer, so that was traumatic. But there was another nice update in regards to the Delphi case where they did finally bring in somebody for that case. And I did make friends with Kelsey and she both of them have been on the show. They are the advocates. You go to CrimeCon, they're the advocates. They it's it's one of those things that could be there's a there's somebody that can step in there and help these families move things along. I just feel like we have the resources. We spend all this money on other stuff. We can earmark something yeah, and start working. It's not that difficult. At the end of the day, what do you hope to achieve out of this podcast?
1: When I first talked to my parents and then the sisters, I think what we all wanted was answers about yes, who did this, but also why? I think the why is important in any case, but this one, for reasons we've discussed, it's just an especially haunting question. Why, why did it have to be so violent? What could possibly have motivated someone to have committed the murders in, in this particular way. So I my hope is that we get some answers. You know, do, will that mean that this won't be a horrible, nightmarish murder anymore? No, of course not. Like, it will always be that. It will always be something awful and nightmarish. You know, some answers would help create some peace, some level of peace that's not there in the world. Uh, in Well, let's say in the sisters... In Friends of Mary and Bill, and then by extension in the world, maybe, you know, just knowing knowing the why.
0: And I think that's a very admirable thing to be looking to achieve. And I do feel like the more attention that you put onto this case, you know, the more likely it is to get that attention of the police to hopefully reactivate everything and to continue down this path and hopefully they'll be able to find some answers. Uh, but at the end of the day, we all know that there's no such thing as closure for these families. It's right. uh it's it's a chapter that they may be able to put a bookmark in, but unfortunately that bookmark will forever live there because they were tragically taken from their lives. So, yeah. I think what you're doing is great. I think the fact that you're spending so much time with them and helping them find answers. It's also got to give you some sense of you're doing your part. Thanks,
1: Bill. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I think it, it has been really, I will say, I, I'm not sure I will ever do another true crime <laughs> podcast again because it's,
0: it's, you it's picked a pretty a awful lot. one, man. <laughs> it's not gonna, let's be honest. I mean, let the listeners know, this is a brutal, brutal case. We it danced is. around the brutality. Yeah. Of it. You can Google this. You can look it up. You can find the detailed details on this. But I'm going to warn you, it's disturbing. And we didn't really want to talk too much about the full extent of everything. It just is yeah. too much. And it's not fair to anybody that's involved. But Justin, I think it's awesome what you're doing. I hope that you do find answers and, again, keep at it. But, uh, hey, true crime, it's not for everyone. You're welcome in the true crime field anytime you want to come back in.
1: I appreciate it. I, and just what I was going to say is it's even though, though I don't know if we'll ever do another one, it's, it's just been so hugely gratifying for all the reasons you mentioned because I think we have moved the case forward. It's just as a result of doing the podcast. Beyond it, now being out in the world, I think we have really moved things forward. So,
0: Give me your pluggables.
1: Mary and Bill, an Ohio cold case, wherever you get your podcasts. And then we do have, Bill, a website that I'm really proud of, too, associated with the case that has a lot of resources on it for folks who do want to look at the original summary. Police reports, the coroner's reports. We have a bunch of photos of Mary and Bill, nothing graphic. Um, just really great photos of them from living their lives that I think are really moving a timeline of the case, very detailed timeline of the case. That's all at org slash Mary and Bill.
0: Yeah. I'll provide a link in the show notes and that way everybody can get a little bit more information and then they follow the rest of this case. Thank you again so much for coming on who killed and we always enjoy a, uh, new true crime podcaster, even if you're not going to be diving back into the field anytime soon.
1: You never know. Who knows? (laughs) But yes, of course, Bill, it's been a pleasure talking with you.
0: Awesome. Thanks again. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. And a big thanks to Justin Glanville, the host of Mary and Bill an Ohio cold case. You can find their podcast wherever you get your favorite shows As you know, I drop new episodes every Friday. And if you guys are interested in following me on Twitter, you can do so at BillHuffman3. I refuse to call it by its new name. And who knows where that service will go. But in the meantime, if you guys want to learn more about any of these cold cases, you can always Google them. And in the meantime, be healthy and stay safe.
1: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See
0: terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was
0: abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since
1: then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work